Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people, on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayer of, prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it onto the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea was turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed." The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. This is the word of the Lord. There was a very famous journalist in London by the name of Bernard Levin, who once wrote an account concerning a concert that he attended. It was a concert performance of his favorite composer, Schubert. He described the scene, said once the concert was over, the entire audience was stunned and they sat in complete silence. No applause. People just got up slowly and walked out in complete silence. Sometimes it seems like that's the only response that's appropriate under certain circumstances. There is, by the way, the applause of heaven. There's plenty of noise going on in Revelation. But at the beginning of this chapter, the seventh seal is opened. And when it's opened, there's complete silence. Absolute silence for the space of about a half an hour. Some commentators have read this passage and suggested that it's symbolic of the prayers of the saints which were to ascend to God. Prayers and incense. 
It's as though heaven just had to be silent because it was that important. The picture that emerges out of the seventh seal is absolutely terrifying in its judgment. The angel takes the prayers and the incense that has reached the throne of God and hurls it towards earth. And its hurling creates or is like thunder and lightning and an earthquake. The first trumpet blast from the angel represents a plague that is mixed with fire and blood. A third of the trees and the green grass, a third of the earth is burned up. Second trumpet sound from an angel is something like a huge mountain, a flame thrown into the sea. Reminds you of a volcano. And a third of the sea creatures and a third of humanity in the ships were destroyed. Third trumpet blast was a great star that fell from heaven into the rivers, the source of pure water. The name of it was Wormwood, and it made those waters bitter to the point that people died. The fourth trumpet blast announced a third dramatic event where the sun and the moon and the stars, day and night, a third of them were covered. The fifth trumpet blast is a falling star that crashes into strategically an abyss. Imagine a gigantic pit. And as it goes into the abyss, out of the abyss emerges locusts which spread across the earth. Artists have done their best to give us a rendition of what things like that might have looked like. Best we can tell, that's probably what the locusts looked like in John's vision. Imagine that. You see them coming out of the abyss. And they cover the earth in such a way that it's like a dark cloud. There's so many of them. You know what locusts usually do? They destroy all the crops. But on this occasion, they aren't given the ability or the command to destroy crops. They are used against humanity. Scorpion-like tails, they sting. They bite. They do not have the authority to kill, only to bring harm. Such harm and such pain that the people scream out for death itself, wishing for death rather than the sting that has been afflicted upon them. Sixth trumpet is an announcement of 200 million warriors flattening a section of the earth. The warriors that came against this section of the earth look like horses with lion heads. Here's a a rendition of an artist's depiction of that. 200 million. 
from the other side of the Euphrates River, which would have been east of the Roman Empire, where the Parthenians were. That dramatic picture could strike fear in anyone's heart. And again, a third of humanity was killed by the plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that they breathed out of their mouth. And after that was over, the sixth trumpet, those who were left and were not killed by the judgment of God, still, they refused to repent. So what's the historical meaning in all this? What kind of events have we experienced or might we experience that would correspond to such judgments of God? Well, let's admit up front that we make make historical connections to events in apocalyptic literature. We routinely make mistakes, correct? Just like the mistake I made last week when I described the reign of King Louis the 14th, and actually I meant King Louis the 16th. How many of you caught that? Oh, look, quite a few. Doobie, you didn't catch that. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Only at ECC would people catch such minute historical references, and somebody told me on the way out, hey, pastor, it was actually Louis the 16th, not the 14th, but don't worry about it, because Louis the 14th probably did things just as bad. So I, I felt better about it. But my point is, we make historical mistakes, right? And we make them when we're trying to figure out how this corresponds to our historical reality. One thing is clear is these plagues look a lot like the plagues of Egypt, Right? So John probably had that in mind when he wrote it, and he assumed you would understand that and refer back to it. So reread it again sometime, and you can see those references. At the very beginning of this series, I talked about four major perspectives on the book of Revelation. So when it comes to these historical events, I wanted to break down for you the possible interpretations from each of those four perspectives. It'll go quickly. The first perspective is the historicist perspective. And in the historicist perspective, what this horde of plagues and 200 million warriors represent is the destruction of Rome. Of course, they weren't Parthenians because they stayed on the other side of the Euphrates. Rome was crushed from the north. And the historicists see that as the invasion over and over again of the Vandals, the Huns, and eventually the sixth trumpet. If you're a history buff, the sixth trumpet, they say, was actually the destruction or the overrunning of Constantinople. If you're not of a historicist perspective, you might be a preterist perspective. The preterist perspective on these events is that the four trumpets that were sounded were destructive, but those destructions already happened way back when. 
And as a matter of fact, the fifth trumpet, it was a release of a demonic spirit across the known world at that time. So the Jewish nation, under demonic influence, rejected its Messiah. And before it was all over, the sixth trumpet was a description of the destruction of Jerusalem. Preterist point of view. If you take a spiritualist point of view, you may see these as recurring historical events. They've happened in the past, plagues and wars, and they continue to happen now and will into the future until the day of final judgment. Or perhaps the one you're more familiar with is the futurist perspective. The futurist perspective basically says this. These trumpets represent the calamities of the so-called great tribulation at the end of the age. And then those people who happen to be futurists, they parse out whether it's pre-tribulation or post-tribulation. The invading armies of the east could have been seen in a variety of ways. Early on, Parthenian warriors seemed to be symbolic of the kind of language that John used with long hairs and dashing arrows on horses, and the horses maybe even looking like lions. Another futurist prediction of what happened is this, that the Turks invaded Western Christianity, namely Europe, and finally were stopped again at Vienna before they were able to completely overcome Western Europe. Other people look at these events and see backwards just a little bit, and I can remember the prediction about these events, that these events corresponded to the Iron Curtain of Europe the communist onslaught that was coming towards the West. I remember as a child being fearful of it, thinking maybe the end times were upon us. Some people nowadays see radical terrorism from the Middle East as the threat represented in this passage. And if that doesn't work for you, maybe you'd like to use China as the villain from the east. It's going to crush the west. There's lots of good candidates historically, but so far all of them that I have listed, in my opinion, probably fall short. They don't fall short because there haven't been wars with all those nations that were cataclysmic. There have been. They don't fall short because plagues haven't happened because plagues have happened. They fall short because the end is not yet here. The end has not yet come. And connecting all the historical dots, well, as fascinating as it is, it's definitely speculative. So what is behind the historical ideas or predictions in the text? It's what I would call the theological meaning. 
or the proclamation, meaning of prophecy. Here's what I believe is behind all that. The fact that the judgment of God is real. And that, my friends, is a very unpopular theme in 21st century America and Europe and some other parts of the world. Why is that true? We recoil from a judging God. And we want to believe that God is exclusively a God of love. And what is the motivation for that kind of thinking? It's quite frankly that we don't take sin seriously. We don't believe in the deep depravity of the human heart. We think of evil as isolated and episodic. This tells a different story. N.T. Wright, when addressing this in the commentary that he writes on the book of Revelation, put it this way. Even after a century of war, terror, and high-tech genocide, we are still inclined, in the Western world at least, to pretend to ourselves that the world has really become quite a pleasant place, with evil merely a blip on the horizon with which we can deal easily enough. However, however great the contrary evidence, this modern myth of the eradication of evil through enlightenment, leaving us only a few minor mopping up operations, preferably far away, before utopia finally arrives, it has taken such a hold on popular imagination that any idea of God having to do with anything powerful and destructive to address the problem is regarded as far too drastic, far too dramatic. But this is the most important thing for us to remember. But none of the early Christians, and certainly not Jesus himself, would have colluded with this glossing over of the seriousness of evil. Evil is not episodic. It's not a blip on the radar screen and somewhere out there Evil is within our culture, deeply embedded. And God will judge it. The final judgment of God is coming, is what the deeper meaning of this text says. And sometimes I think we become numbed by the constant historical parade of evil. One war after another, one murder after another, one atrocity after another, one plague after another. And we're wondering whether God will ever judge. We become perhaps desensitized. Or maybe we've been 
deluded by multiple predictions that don't in the end fit the end of the story. We've been disappointed by prophetic notions concerning the end times and it's 1970 and it's 1980 and 1990 and we finally think to ourselves, oh forget it, probably not going to happen anyway. There have been many historical plagues and wars and atrocities and many of them could be mapped into this text. And there will be many more. But finally, says this text, the ultimate judgment of God will come. We don't know when, but it will come. There's another problem that's at work when we think of judgment. We misunderstand routinely the judgment of God in this way. We relegate the judgment of God either to materialistic perspectives or spiritualistic perspectives. In other words, we say to ourselves, oh, I understand the judgment of God. The judgment of God is the kind of thing that happens to you naturally because you're stupid and sinful. It's the consequences of your own sin. And to that I want to say yes. But the opposite perspective sees everything through a spiritualist lens and says that every activity, every plague, every kind of catastrophe is the spiritual judgment of God upon humanity. And at a certain level, I want to say yes to that. But here's what I want to do. I don't want to be one or the other either the radical materialist or the radical spiritualist. What I would suggest is that we ought to be sovereignist, a word I just made up. We ought to embrace the reality of the sovereignty of God and say concerning sin, it has natural consequences. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And we ought also to say, sometimes God does catastrophic judgmental acts. Not just in the Old Testament, my friends, but in the New Testament as well. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? That was hardly a natural death. It wasn't the product of them just being stupid. God struck them down. So both and are in the vision of God's judgment. We can't release either of them. And we can't fixate on one or the other. God's judgment... sometimes comes through catastrophic events. But it's hard to sort out which one God sends directly and which one God allows us to experience because of our sinfulness. How about a contemporary 
analogy. What is COVID-19? I'm not ready to make a declaration, but I am willing to say it could be the judgment of God. The final point of the deep meaning of this text is found in one word, prayer. First judgment, then prayer, but actually in the reverse order. Because remember, we started out at the beginning with prayer. Do you remember that the book of Revelation started out with prayer? Do you remember that when John got his vision, it was when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? He wasn't in the Spirit on the Lord's Day worshiping with his congregation. He was isolated at the Isle of Patmos. He wasn't the all-present apostle who was counseling and shepherding his flock. He was all alone. He was isolated by himself. Surely it must have been that he was in prayer. The Christian community, the early Christian community, had a picture of life that was embedded with the reality of prayer. Eugene Peterson put it this way. For the early Christian community, while conflicts raged between good and evil, prayers went up from devout bands of first-century Christians all over the Roman Empire, massive engines of persecution and scorn were ranged against them. They had neither weapon nor vote. They had little money and no prestige. Why didn't they have mental breakdowns? Instead, they prayed. When Peter was taken into prison, early in the book of Acts, the Christians had no power, no vote, no influence. So they gathered at Rhoda's house on their knees in prayer. And God intervened with an angel and released Peter from prison. They were shocked that their prayer turned out to work, but they believed it could. It was a steadfast belief of the early Christians that prayer mattered, that prayer changes things. Prayer might not change the circumstances and the direction we wish, but when we pray, we are changed. And when we pray, things happen. A Christian philosopher named Pascal once said, prayer is God's way of providing man with the dignity of causality. Don't you love that? I'll say it again in case you want to write it down. Prayer is God's way of providing man with the dignity 
of causality. What is it? It's deliberate, direct access to the God of the universe who is writing the story of history and will bring it to a conclusion. Question. Do we really believe that? Do we really embrace that reality? Do we really take prayer that seriously? If we don't, why not? Because it is the silent, powerful weapon of the church. Let's use it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your judgment. Of course, we thank you for your love, but we must thank you for both. I thank you for the fact, Lord, that you do not let evil stand. I thank you for the fact, Lord, that you did not allow evil to stand in our lives. We're not protected from judgment or or discipline because we're good, Lord. We're protected from the final judgment because we've repented. We're protected from the final judgment because we've been given grace in spite of our sins. And then, in the relationship that you created by your own Son on the cross, you promise us resurrection life. And as we live now and wait for that day, We pray you will help us to exercise the most powerful weapon available to us, and that is prayer. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen.